It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Hartman North America, and we're recording on May 3rd, 2021. So this past week, a story broke reported by Hannah Dreyfus in the foreword about Sheldon Zimmerman, a former rabbi of Central Synagogue in New York, whose career had been, let's say, slightly derailed about 20 some odd years ago by unspecified allegations of personal misconduct, which now, due to this reporting and an investigation by the synagogue, turns out to have been predatory sexual misconduct, harassment, and possibly assault. Some questions about that, depending on the article itself, as well as the corrections in the article, Zimmerman had actually left Central Synagogue and gone on to become president of HUCJIR, also took on a leadership role at Birthright Israel. And it raises a whole bunch of questions about what it means for this story to have been kept under wraps for so long for institutions like HUC and the Central Conference of American Rabbis. It raises questions for this synagogue about how it tells the story of its past, lingering questions about the future of memory, one of my favorite topics, and kind of is a window into a problem that we've seen in the Jewish community in many cases of stories that are improperly investigated, let to fester for a long time. And in this case, not exactly a disclosure of something that a lot of people didn't know, but a bringing to light of a story that had been kept under wraps for, for way too long. There are, of course, many such stories in the Jewish world. There are parallels to perhaps other communities, and especially since the Me Too movement, but not exclusively. I remember when Gary Rosenblatt was reporting the Baruch Lanner story in the Jewish Week, which was years before Me Too. Um, So there are many such stories. They have become a kind of significant industry in the Jewish community in reckoning with sexual harassment, misconduct, and assault as a characteristic of Jewish leadership and one that needs to be investigated. And incidentally, coincidentally, of course, the Blake Bailey story also broke this week. The biographer of Philip Roth, who turns out himself, is accused of sexual assault and the result being that that book is taken off the shelf. So a lot of questions are raised in the moment like this, not just about these behaviors by individuals, but also about institutional responses. What happens when something like this gets disclosed? Do synagogues, institutions know what to do? How do they handle it? How does the story get told? Raises incredibly interesting and important questions for the Jewish community about the role of independent media in bringing these stories to light in investigative journalism and about what is or isn't changing in the Jewish community as a result of this reporting. So I'm excited to talk this week to one of the individuals who I think is on a lot of people's speed dial around moments like this, Hannah Dreyfus, who, as I mentioned, wrote this story this week in the foreword. Hannah's an award-winning Brooklyn-based freelance journalist who covers abuses of power in nonprofit, religious, and academic settings, writes for Jewish media, as well as what we call non-Jewish media, whatever that means, and played a central role, among others, in the Stephen M. Cohen investigation and story, and the story about the philanthropist Michael Steinhardt and many others. So Hannah, thanks for, for being on Identity Crisis, especially in the middle of this week. Sure. Glad to be here. 
So I want to start by just talking about this as your specialization, right? Now that it's in your bio, it covers abuses of power in nonprofit, religious, and academic settings. You're obviously good at this. I didn't choose it. It found me. That's right. But let's talk about that a little bit. What is it like to be in this business? What does it feel like to be in this business? And what is it like to hold these stories? Because I assume that there are aspects of any story that can't fully come to light. And that's a heavy, weighty responsibility for you, not just as a person who's paid to tell these stories, but as a person who is also holding so much below the surface for these oftentimes sordid and really terrible stories. Sure. So I sort of compare my job sometimes to the way that people will go if they find out that somebody's a doctor they'll immediately like show them a rash on their arm and get them to sort of weigh in on what this is or my husband's a rabbi so if somebody finds out you're a rabbi immediately you're going to be bombarded with questions about you know the meaning of life and philosophical inquiries and childhood issues with religion, even if you don't know the person. So somehow I've made a niche for myself where when I introduce myself to people and say a little, share a little bit about what I do, I immediately am greeted with the worst stories <laughs> that, that people have to sort of offer up. They're like, oh, well, you report on abuse. Well, let me tell you this terrible story. And so what you're saying about holding a lot is definitely true. It's definitely true. I think the heaviest part of the holding of stories that I do is when I sort of collect a story from a survivor and I'm not able to bring the story, the investigation to fruition for whatever reason. And there are a lot of reasons that stories that should be told are not able to be told. And I think that when I'm able in the case, let's say, of this most recent Rabbi Zimmerman investigation to bring an investigation to fruition and on a relatively short timeline, there's an incredible amount of relief that comes with that because I feel as though I'm able to use my skills and talents to move towards transparency and shining a light on things that were previously in the dark. When I know of things and I'm not given the opportunity or, or for various reasons that are beyond my control frequently, I can't bring that story to fruition. I still know of those stories. I still carry the feeling that injustices have been committed and have not seen the light of day, and some cases may not see the light of day. And that's really heavy, and it, it does keep me up at nights. And I'm always working on a lot of different things at the same time. And I do believe that, you know, if something is meant to come out and when the world and, and the people who need to tell those stories are ready to tell it, it will surface. That's something that I believe in strongly, even if it takes time. But there are definitely days when the load of untold stories that I carry feels really heavy. Yeah. As you know, I had like a, I was a whistleblower on a, on a rabbinic misconduct and malfeasance story that ultimately hit the New York Times. And that took like a couple of years off my life. And I have some stories to share about that. One of which was a colleague and I went to meet with the New York Times reporter. We sat for about an hour and a half and talked. And at the end of an hour and a half, the reporter just kind of sat there stone-faced and we didn't know what had just materialized. I think I said something like, so do we have a story? Like, is there a story here? And she like burst out laughing and she was like, are you kidding? But I think that that's part of it. Like there's a lot of people carrying around these stories. They don't know that they have a story. Yeah. They don't believe that their story either has merit or maybe they 
think that they misremember things. What do you see about that? As you said, you're carrying around oftentimes other people's stories that can't reach the light of day. But what are the other obstacles that individuals may feel about whether they think that their story has merit? And what's your role, I guess, pastorally in that process? Pastorally? Can we use that in terms of journalism? I think so. But you tell me if you can't. I don't know. I've never heard that. I've never heard the word pastoral used in terms of what I do, but it's an interesting usage. I think that people's tendency to doubt that their stories have significance is one of the biggest barriers I deal with. That's a barrier that exists before even the barrier of the reporting comes about. People censoring their own experiences and questioning if whether they suffered or what they went through was okay or not okay and deciding that it wasn't significant. And a lot of times just adopting the mentality that institutions will frequently encourage to just kind of keep your nose down and keep going. People gaslight themselves. It wasn't that bad. What I went through wasn't that bad. It wasn't this. I've had so many stories from survivors who call me, and there's always this sort of tone of hesitance before they disclose something. And there's this need to qualify. Well, I just want you to know my story wasn't this. My story wasn't this. This need to say that whatever I went through, don't think it was so bad. Um, And then they share their story and frequently, it is that bad. And even if it's not, the, the point is that what they went through is significant. And I always remind survivors when they come forward to me that if this happened to you, it almost sure as hell happened to other people. And that it allows the first steps to be taken towards understanding the full breadth of what happened. The example that I like to give is I did an investigation into Len Robinson, who used to be the head of one of the largest camping organizations in North America. And the story eventually ended up disclosing that Robinson allegedly had non-consensual sexual relationships with young underage female counselors and that that type of behavior lasted for years. So the investigation went there, but it didn't necessarily start there. The person who first came forward to me is a wonderful person and now friend, Debbie Finling. Shout out if you are listening. And she wrote an op-ed about inappropriate behavior that she experienced early on in her career. And I have to review, she wrote an op-ed for the Jewish Week where she described what she experienced. And I don't even know if it involved, I'm not sure if it involved inappropriate touching, but it was boundary pushing behaviors. You know, questions about someone, inappropriate personal questions, maybe a kiss or a hug that went a little too long, things that raise alarm bells, but are not going to be the dictionary definition of anything. And Debbie's decision to decide that her story was important enough to share and that her story was important enough to tell me about, her self-validation allowed me to begin down the road towards an investigation that ended with uncovering incredibly serious allegations. And the people who had been deeply hurt for years and had been carrying so much pain for years were able to kind of come out of the woodwork 
because somebody started by validating the importance of their own story, which could have easily been dismissed as just, you know, that's just him being him or her being her. So I think it's important for people to not gaslight themselves and understand the significance of their own stories and what they've been through. And that if something didn't feel right, then it's okay to share that. You don't have to necessarily share it with a journalist. There's a lot of steps that come before that. But if something didn't feel right, you can take steps within your organization, within your faith community to take a stand for yourself and say, this crossed a boundary, I'm not comfortable with it. And hopefully the organization will be able to address that in appropriate fashion. But I think starting to realize the significance and importance of one's own story is essential to any type of reckoning with systemic behavioral issues that have perpetuated for decades. But you said just now, telling your story or bringing it to your institution, it doesn't have to be going to a journalist. But there's a lot loaded into that kind of subordinate clause of what's the difference between when someone goes and talks to a journalist versus not, I'm not making a moral argument, right, where people get mad at, well, why did you have to take it outside, you know, air our dirty laundry in public? But there is a lot of power in journalism. I guess I'm curious about two things. One is your consciousness of your own power in this process, what that means for you, because you're investigating abuses of power, but there's a lot of power in bringing something to light and putting out in public. And also, where do you see your role relative to is the right thing to do for somebody to first go talk to their rabbi, their institution, or is the right thing to do for somebody to pick up and call the independent investigative journalist who's going to force the question? I know it's an unfair dichotomy, but I want you to unpack that a little bit if you can. So I think if the question, as I see it, you know, when to go to a journalist, I think journalism is there as sort of a catch-all when other systems fail. Journalism, I see as sort of at least the type of work I do as sort of a last resort. A problem has gone on for years and it's just the depth of the problem has never been fully explored. The people who are involved in the institutions surrounding the bad actors, so to speak, are too invested in the reputation of their own professional reputation, the reputation of the institution to really delve deep into something. And unfortunately, it frequently falls on the people who have been victimized to then cross that final threshold and bring it to a journalist. That is not always the case. And after this, we can discuss how with, with the Zimmerman story, that wasn't the case. And I think it's exceptional and something that can be looked at as a precedent for hopefully our community moving forward. But in a lot of cases, going to a journalist is a last resort when attempts to correct a difficult situation internally have failed. I think your question was, how do I relate to that power? Definitely, it's overwhelming. I have a very vivid memory of, this is once again going back to the Len Robinson investigation. My investigation ended up, the entire board of the camping organization resigned because of my reporting. And I remember coming into what was then the Jewish Week office in Times Square and seeing in my email inbox that the communications representative for the camping organization reached out to me and said, you know, this is embargoed, but everyone's resigning. Here's the statement. And I had this moment of like, <laughs> because of me? 
and what if I hadn't been here? And I had this uh, kind of moment, maybe it's connected to imposter syndrome, but sort of like, when are the grownups going to come? You know, sometimes I feel young and being the one to call out people who are twice and more my age. And why did it take me reporting on this to bring about this collective action? But at the same time, I see that it's incredibly humbling and sometimes confounding that I've somehow stepped into a role where a story that I work on for weeks or months can cause the infrastructure of an entire organization to reshuffle. That said, it's a huge privilege to be in a role where my work can have impact. It's incredibly rewarding. It's why I keep doing the work that I do, despite there being many reasons, many, many, many reasons why I could have walked away and perhaps should have walked away from journalism at this point in my career. But it's rare to have the agency to create change. And journalism allows you that power. I think some of it is because people will do bad things and cover it up. Everybody relates to the fear of having your worst moment known by other people. That's sort of a universal human fear that's terrifying and holds a tremendous amount of weight across the board. And I think that's what gives journalism power. It's not necessarily that the bad actors whose misconduct I've chronicled are the ones responsible for this problem. That's definitely not the case. They're part of a system that it enables and perpetuates it. But the power of revealing behavior that should be repugnant, so, you know, more morally repugnant, holds a tremendous amount of weight and will wake people up and enable change in a way that nothing else will. Things can languish for decades, and they do. And one story, I mean, shame is, is a word that comes up, and shame is a very scary tool and dangerous but incredibly effective. I mean, it's effective when perpetrators actually are forced to become ashamed of their own behavior. That seems to me part of the whole economy of predation is that people act without shame because they fear no consequences. And it's extraordinary to me when the retribution in moments like this is against either journalists or whistleblowers. And it's oftentimes played out by people who acknowledge the facts of the case. Right, So it's not you told a story that didn't happen, but you're the agent that actually put this in public, and it's much harder for people to reckon with, oh, wow, this terrible thing by this human being actually took place. So they displace their anger, they displace their rage on the person who actually puts it in the public square. Absolutely. And shame is also one of the most effective tactics for keeping survivors of all different types of abuse quiet taking the shame of what happened and misdirecting it and redirecting it on to the person to whom it happened. And once again, I think that that is a reason, sort of fighting against that shame, it's all part of the process of validating one's own story and feeling confident in sharing one's story and feeling that one's own story is important. And that allows for my work. So for anyone who questions that their story has merit or value, just know it's the building blocks of what I do. Yeah. 
You alluded to before the example of Central as a unique example. In some ways, I don't know exactly the timeline, but initiating a process of ultimately what has become an open and public investigation by the synagogue about its past. And in contrast to what usually appears to be these stories, which is it's only when a journalist gets involved that people start to panic. And it's only when something hits the light of day, then they try to figure out how to manage the crisis and the fallout. I'm interested in sitting at that intersection for a moment that what happens when you call, right? Or when people get wind of a story, what do you witness and what do you tend to experience among leaders when something is percolating? And maybe we'll get afterwards to what would be a good version of how to respond to moments like this. I think when an investigation of mine gets to a point where significant players are aware of it, you start getting shut down. Mm -hmm. Doors just start slamming in your face everywhere. Organizations put out memos. Do not speak to Hannah Dreyfus. Do not pick up the phone. I sort of have to try and do as much reporting as I can before it reaches that point. And part of structuring an investigation is only letting an investigation reach the point where the players involved who have the potential to shut it down can't shut it down because it's already enough has been gathered. So I'm accustomed to sort of an organizational tizzy, one might call it. Usually I'll be in touch with the communications folks who are working under an incredible amount of pressure and are trying to be really polite, but I can tell how much strain they're under from the people who hire them to sort of be the go-betweens. And I feel like I too am sort of the go-between between the public and the institution. So I understand that pressure for those who are in that role, in that sort of crisis management role. It's a tough one. I think this investigation to Central Synagogue was totally different and incredibly unique and very heartening, no pun intended, <laughs> for the future of how organizations can handle really, really painful, difficult, and embarrassing situations about ways things were perhaps not handled properly in the past. I was not knocking, I wasn't chasing them down. Doors weren't getting slammed in my face. To the contrary, doors were being opened and I was metaphorically being brought inside with honesty and humility. The leadership at Central, Rabbi Angela Buchtal, the president, Jeremy Fields, they were refreshingly honest, both in their communication with me and in their communication with congregants. There was an obvious soul-searching that was taking place, and I think it speaks really powerfully to the future of where we could go when looking back at some of these painful moments, and that reckoning doesn't have to mean running away from what happened. It can mean delving into it, and even delving into it with a journalist by your side. Yeah. I didn't feel like the enemy of the institution. I didn't feel like I was the opposite force. Yeah. That's how I, I frequently feel. Like I'm pushing and I'm getting a lot of pushback. I'm trying to be pushed out. I'm trying to be silenced. I am perceived as a threat. Here, I felt like there was a sense of camaraderie hmm. towards a common goal, which is reckoning with abuse and, and how it was mishandled. And that was really stunning for me. It wasn't only stunning for me, it was incredible for the survivors. The woman who used her name in the forward article 
when we first spoke, she was not planning on using her name. And I have at this point had the conversation with many people about the importance of using their name and why I recommend it. In the end, she chose to use her name and she has felt so grateful for the article. She described to me feeling lighter than she ever has in her life. Wow. Singing the Misha Beirach for herself when she's always sung it for other people. This is a woman who is 74 turning 75 and who has not shared this story since her 20s. Wow. And when she speaks about the people who enabled her, not enabled in a bad way, but who allowed her to come to this point where she could share her story, I'm on the list, but I'm not the only person on the list. The rabbi of Central Synagogue, Rabbi Angela, is on the list. Mm -hmm. The investigators who they hired, those are people on the list. I haven't found in many cases where I'm one of several people encouraging survivors to come forward. It's usually me trying to promise a survivor before they jump into a terrifying void of unknowns yeah. that it will be okay on the other end. Even though we know it's not. I mean, it's an incredibly compelling vision of collaboration of Chavruta, basically, between you and institutions, as opposed to what oftentimes is the case, which is a combative culture, which is born almost naturally of institutional leadership viewing its responsibility as custodial, like we have to protect the institution against the threat and the threat, especially if it's a predator who's no longer there. Now the real threat is that people will think we are a place that harbors predators, even though we know that we're not anymore. And that dichotomy creates such a bad dynamic. And as you mentioned, you know, so many, I guess, good variables that we could study from this case of Rabbi Angela's leadership. I think it's not a coincidence that it's women-led leadership, although it's not always the case, but it's oftentimes the case that women-led leadership can see these issues differently than men, that maybe it helps that this was in the rearview mirror of the synagogue from a long time ago. I read in your story that the person who came forward was motivated by Rabbi Angela's own sermon on confronting racism, so there was an internal language about self-reflection already. On the flip side, you know, I have a theory, which I think was corroborated by Gary Rosenblatt a couple of years ago, which is that rabbis are not trained to talk to the press. And so it's not just I'm protecting my institution. It's I genuinely don't know what to do if I get a call. I don't know what to say. And when people don't know what to say, they're going to say the wrong thing. I don't know. Sometimes when people don't know the right thing to say, they tell the truth, which is good. It's good to tell the truth. <laughs> It's good from the standpoint of the story. It may not be great from the standpoint of the process. What should happen? Let's acknowledge, you're never going to have a situation where predators don't try to exploit weaknesses, people or institutional loopholes. But you might have a stronger culture of a community that responds well when these things happen and that reduces the combative dynamic between the public story and institutional health. So if you wanted to get to that place, you'd have to figure out how to help institutional leaders, rabbis, community leaders to figure out how to partner more effectively with the press. So you have a podium now. What do you want them to do? How do you want them to take your call? What should be the first set of questions that they ask of themselves? And how do you want them to respond to you? That's a great and very large question. I think I'm sort of toying and one thinking about how to answer it, what's realistic and what's not. Because people who represent institutions or work for institutions don't always make the decision about whether or not they can come to me. They might. They might want to forge a relationship of transparency within their own organization. 
or within the broader context of their community, but there are bureaucratic powers that be that don't allow it. It could put their job, and sometimes does, put their job at risk. I'm thinking specifically of a source who worked with me, and she did not share any information with me. But just her boss's perception and assumption that she had been the whistleblower caused her to have an intolerable work situation Mm. to the extent that she had to leave her job and I think the field of Jewish nonprofit work. At some point, hopefully I'll report that out. I put her on the spot and she didn't break, but just even the perception, the perception that she was the one who had shared this information was enough to create a retaliatory workplace. So people are up against a lot, even people who want to share In the case of Central Synagogue, I think what was unique is that all the leadership at the top was on the same page, seemingly. There seemed to be a united desire to seek transparency in this case, and that allowed them to open the door to me. It's not as simple when there's various different powers that be in an organization, and one person will have a different opinion about how to handle something, and that tension is another block to working effectively with the press. I would say, standing on my podium, that you, member of institution who is aware of something that's gone wrong, should know that continuing to cover it up will only harm your institution, that it's never too late to do teshuvah, and seriously reckon with mistakes that were made, even if they were incredibly deep mistakes that had impacts on people's lives. If you are brave enough to open the door to self-reflection inquiry, inviting a journalist in will do your organization good. It is totally counterintuitive. Every bone in your body will scream at you that it is not the right thing to do and that you need to cover up. You know, that's our human tendency. It's a protective mode. It's a defensive mode. When we see things we don't like, we bury them. We cover them. But fighting that urge and realizing that at least I could speak for myself, I can't speak for all journalists, but I have the best interest of this community in mind. I'm a part of this community. Mm. I don't report on the Jewish institutional world from outside it. I report from very much inside it, and I care about its future realize that I am looking to be an ally towards a goal that on paper we all share, which is creating systems and institutions that enable positive behavior and people to reach their fullest potential and don't allow for abusive situations or personalities to continue and gain momentum and silence others. I think a lot of it has to do with realizing that the press is not the enemy, that I'm not the enemy of your institution, What's the enemy of your institution is enabling a pattern of abuse to continue. That is the enemy. I'd be curious for you to prognosticate, if you can. You know, the last three years, post Me Too, we've seen a flurry of these stories and emboldening in a really good way of victims and survivors to figure out how to narrate their own stories, the emergence of a number of players in Jewish media who are there on the other side of these calls, it helps that people know your name because they know that there's like a person who sees patterns and knows who to call and how to tell these stories. I'm wondering if you think that the result of this is going to be 
more such stories because we're going to be able to bring in more sunlight and disinfect? Or is the consequence of this flurry of stories fewer, either because people start behaving better, color me skeptical, or because people get better at figuring out how to stay insulated from this? They, they figure out how to screw the top back on of the stuff that's in their midst. Do you have a sense of where the economy of these stories is going? I think that the way the pendulum swings in this regard, and we've seen this, you know, in, in how Me Too has resonated nationwide and globally, is that right now our community is at a point, I think, where stories will lead to stories. I think this is the beginning point of the Pandora's box opening. That's where I think that we are right now. I don't think we've made significant progress into centering the voice and the stories of victims. Absolutely not. I think we are at the beginning, the very beginning of that work. So I see a lot more reporting on this to come and people becoming increasingly emboldened to tell their stories. People are not there yet. Even with the stories that I've done, the fears of the consequences for speaking out are still so real for folks. I think that sometimes there can be sort of an overcorrection. That's sort of the danger of, I think, like social media platforms where a lot of things are aired, but not in a way where there's necessarily ways to productively follow up and that there's necessarily accountability at the end of the day. People sort of want to voice, this happened, this happened, this happened. But if, if you don't do so in a way where there's a system or somebody following the dots, sometimes it just will disappear into the ether. You know, there's going to be an overcorrection and there will be a debate about, I think we're seeing that very much with the reporting on Stephen M. Cohen of how much is too much, how much is enough, and how does the system sort of correct itself to reach back towards a balance point in the center that obviously not everything that somebody's done is worthy of an article, not every misbehavior or overstepping boundaries is representative of something greater. We're not at a point really now where we need to worry too much about people getting ahead of themselves with the movement or with the momentum of coming forward. I think we're at the stages where our community is just beginning to make survivors feel that their stories can even be held. With that, I want to thank Hannah Dreyfus, our guest this week, for her extraordinary work and her courage and her bravery and situating yourself, Hannah, in this place for our community. I'll just end with an editorial comment. If any of you listeners out there have ever wondered about the importance of independent investigative journalism as an asset for the moral quality and health of our community, I really urge you to reconsider it. This is one of the most underinvested in resources that our community has. It has been suffering in recent years, and it's on us. It's our responsibility to create the resources to make our community stronger. And thanks to all of you for listening to our show this week. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute, produced this week by David Svikalman and edited by John Kalish, with assistance from Miri Miller and Sam Hainback, and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review the show on iTunes to help more people find it. And you can write to us with ideas and responses to our episode at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening. In a media landscape flooded with hot takes, we need an island of well-written, long-form essays. 
a place where deep thinkers articulate their ideas and others respond and challenge those ideas with passion and respect. The Shalom Hartman Institute is proud to announce a new quarterly journal of Jewish ideas called Sources. Significant ideas, beautifully expressed, crafted for Jewish thinkers like you. The inaugural issue features essays on the future of Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and a theologian's take on life during a pandemic. You can order a print subscription or read these essays online right now at sourcesjournal.org.